Hey guys and welcome back. Um, so we're in chapter 18 in our um, Pharmacology Clear and Simple book and we're looking at the pulmonary system medications. This is a super short chapter and I'm just going to run through these real quick. So at the very beginning we see that the pulmonary system is responsible for respiration which is a whole inspiration and a whole expiration that is considered a respiration so we know that expiration is an outward movement of air is when we breathe out and inspiration is when we breathe in um those are the big points from that paragraph we're just going to come through we're going to pull out the most important things um so we know that the brain regulates the depth and rate and depth of breathing uh, we know that the alveoli are the tiny air sacs in the lungs, and that is where gas exchange occurs. And then we also know that dyspnea is trouble breathing. I'm not hitting on anything else in there. Okay, so moving on to the pulmonary medications, the first thing that we see is our mast cell stabilizers. And the thing that stuck out to me the most about this with it is that they were the only medications in this chapter that had the word sodium in them. So we have the chromalin sodium, and then we have the netochromyl sodium. And this is your intol and tylate. So I just put sodiums and your IT. Um, so these are going to inhibit mast cells from being destroyed, which is a white blood cell, and that is what is protecting your body. Um, we don't want them to be destroyed. So we are going to inhibit um, those allergens. So these are used to prevent or decrease occurrence of asthma attacks. They do not cure it, um, but they just decrease the body's reaction to triggers and triggers being like pollutants and things. Um, okay, so it should not be used for asthma attacks that are acute, um, but as a preventive measure. Um, so these are going to usually start working within two to six weeks. So this is not, I'm having an asthma attack right now and I need something. This is, we're going to prevent this. It's kind of like I would consider a regimen. Okay, um, I'm not going to go over table 18-1, the asthma, COPD, um, cystic fibrosis, or TB because we'll see that later in this chapter. So the next thing we see is the antitussis and the expectorants. Um, the only difference between these two is that one is going to be for a dry cough and one is going to be for a wet cough. So the antitussive is for dry and it's going to block your cough reflex. It's going to keep you from coughing. This is going to allow your patient to get some rest. They're going to be able to sleep. And the difference between antitussive and expectorants is this one um, could be used with a narcotic such as codeine. And we know that codeine is going to slow your body down. It's going to chill you out so you can rest and you're going to stop uh, coughing because you're not going to cough if you sleep. And then your expectorants, we see that you uh, you have secretions, so we expect secretions to be coming up. This one is going to have your Duratest, your Mucinex, and your Robitussin, so I see DMR. This is going to smooth your respiratory tract. You can also use DMR for the antitussives as well. Um, okay, so antibiotics. We know these fight bacteria, and your two medications in this entire paragraph are INH and rifampin. Okay, so let's look at this. Um, use antibiotics for bacterial infections. For serious infections, we're going to put them in the hospital, and we're going to give them an IV. Um, the usual treatment, though, is oral antibiotics for about 10 to 14 days, and we say that we know we need to finish our antibiotics even if we don't have any more symptoms because why? Because we do not want to become resistant to them. Okay, now... Um, Occasionally, they'll give an IV and an oral medication, and this is going to jumpstart your healing process. You want to just go ahead and, and get this movement going. So the next paragraph is switching gears. This is talking about mycobacterium tuberculosis. I'm just going to say MT, uh, MTB. This is uh, causing contagious TB. So 
I'm going to skip, skip, skip. We see latent tuberculosis. So we're looking at contagious and latent. Contagious means that you have TB and um, it is active. Latent tuberculosis is dormant. So we're going to say that it was kind of late to the party. It's been hanging out in the back. So we see that if you have a immunological disorder such as AIDS or something that's going to suppress your immune system, TB can kill you. Um, so we also see that you're going to have to follow an exact adherence to a regimen of several drugs for 6 to 12 months because TB heals very slowly. So for 6 months to an entire year, you're going to be taking more than one medication, more than one antibiotic. Why is that? Because if you're taking the same antibiotic over and over and over and over and over for 6 months to a year, you are going to become what? You're going to be used to having that drug and you're going to be resistant to it. So that is why they give you a combination of drugs. So the most common uh, combination is the INH and the rifidin or rifampin. Um, and that's the only two medications mentioned this entire thing. They're also going to uh, give, the, give the antibiotics to people that are close to you so that we can prevent infection. Because remember, this is dormant and we don't want it to come out. Um, Okay, so we also see that the latent tuberculosis is treated with one antibiotic for 6 to 12 months to prevent from developing uh, later in life. We don't want it to come out. Latent is not contagious um, because it's just kind of sitting on the back burner. And then rifampin, this is your zebra. Rifampin is going to cause you to have orange-yellow secretions. When I say secretions, we're talking about tears, urine, perspiration, and other body fluids. So leave it simple. Don't overcomplicate it. So the next thing that we see is the tuberculin diagnosis on 357. We see that your TB test is also called a PPD, purified protein derivative. So you have latent, it is not active, but to see if it is an active form of TB, you are going to have a chest radiograph. That is how you tell. Um, and then you can also, for latent, because it's on the back burner and it's dormant, you can give prophylactic administration of antibiotics to help keep the disease from becoming active. And prophylactic is a preventative. Okay, so then we're going to move down to the antiviral medications. So we know that you cannot, um, it does not, antibiotics don't kill viruses and they might actually increase the patient's risk of developing an infection um, that is resistant to antibiotic treatment. But we do know that antiviral medications are used to prevent the growth of a virus. Um, it cannot be killed, but it just prohibits the replication. So it's not going to let it make any more. We also know that antiviral medications are administered to decrease the duration of the illness and to minimize the symptoms. So we're going to cut that time down and we're going to um, cut out some symptoms. So the example here that they had was influenza or flu. And the first thing that came to mind was Tamiflu. That's an over-the-counter drug that you get when you have the flu and you do not want to go to the doctor's office and spend a $30 copay. So you can take these for two to five days out of your little Tamiflu box and um, that's going to help with the symptoms. Okay, so let's see. Example drugs to treat influenza include Zanmivir or Relenza. And um, I tied that in. Zanmivir and influenza both have Zs in them. Relenza, influenza. Anything that you can find to, um, to remember how those things correlate. So Relenza is through an inhaler. And then um, the rest of them can be, you know, normal through a capsule or a liquid. So that was my zebra was the Relenza was an inhaler. It does not cure flu and it does not prevent it from spreading to others. 
Okay, so the next paragraph we're talking about RSV. When we think RSV, we think of babies. We think of the new mothers that do not want you touching all over their babies, do not want them kissing on your babies, as you should not. And so these babies are going to have an extremely thick secretions inside of them. Well, if you think about it, babies cannot even hold their bottles yet. They do not know how to go to the bathroom on their own. They are literally helpless. So they're not going to be able to sit up and cough this stuff up. So um, this is going to be extremely hard for them to, to deal with. Um, so if they have other risk factors, like they're immunocompromised, um, say you have a baby that has AIDS or a congenital birth defect, they're going to be more at risk for developing complications such as pneumonia and bronchiolitis, which is all in your lungs. Um, so they got these secretions and if they already have issues, then it's going to make it worse. So these are given ribavirin or virazole. So the way that I remembered this was RSV. There's only one drug and that's the ribavirin. And I think, well, if a baby's really trying to cough this stuff up, its ribs might hurt. If it's coughing and coughing and coughing and coughing, trying to get this stuff up. So ribavirin, baby's ribs might be sore. Um, this is also given as an aerosol treatment continuously for three to five days. And the way that they do this um, is through a tent. So uh, this can also cause serious side effects. So you do not want to have a pregnant woman around this if you have a pregnant nurse. And you want to remove your contacts lenses before entrance because it can damage the contacts or um, increase eye irritation. So we're moving on to bronchodilator medications and we have three of these. So these are to relieve acute bronchospasm. Um, and they're going to relax the muscles of the bronchi. And the bronchi are the tubes leading down to your lungs. So when it's inhaled, it's going to work immediately in your pulmonary system. Um, when they're taken orally, it's going to take longer for them to feel the effect, but the action of longer is of longer duration and the side effects might last just as long. So we're going to try to simplify this. Anticholinergics are going to be your amp ups. So when I say that, I mean... It's going to stimulate your sympathetic nervous system, which means you are in fight or flight. So you are amped up. Anticholinergics, you're amped up. It's going to increase your heart rate and your blood pressure, and it's going to dry up lung secretions. So the way that I remember these medications are these your tropiums. There's two medications in here, the ipotropium bromide and tiotropium. So the other words would be Spiriva and Atrovent, which you hear in commercials and they talk about Spiriva. Okay, so your tropiums and then Atrovent and Spiriva. Um... These are uh, prescribed for patients with bronchitis, emphysema, or COPD, and it's inhaled. Uh, Atrovent is through a mist. Spiriva is through a powder. Okay, moving on. So the uh, xanthines and methylxanthines, these are your fillings. Simple dimple. Don't make it any more complicated. So these include um, theophylline and aminophylline. These are going to relax the muscle to relieve a bronchospasm, and ammonia is the most common illness for which, I'm not I'm sorry, asthma is the most common illness for which this medication is used. So you have a very narrow safety margin. So when I think of narrow safety margin, I usually think of insulin. You cannot bump it up or down. It has to be an exact or you can kill somebody. So the same goes for these xanthines. You have a very small window that you can give. Um, IV aminophylline can be given to continuous for a serious asthma attack that is um, in a patient's hospitalized oral forms such as aminophylline and, uh, and theophylline, elixophylline, theodor sprinkles can be taken on, uh, should be taken on empty stomach in a full glass of water. Why? Because it absorbs faster. But on the other end, if you take it on a full stomach, then you're not going to have as much GI upset. You're going to have such a uh, upset stomach. 
Okay, so now we're going to go to the beta adrenergic and agonists. So these are also bronchodilators, and they're used for treating asthma. Um, so they're going to stimulate something on the sympathetic nervous system, and they're going to result in bronchi bronchial dilation, meaning they're going to open up those bronchioles so you can breathe. And these are going to be um, aerol and terenol. Um, that's what your medicines are going to be ending in. For example, your short-acting are going to be albuterol, uh, betalterol. You have levobuterol, isoproteinerol, metaproteranol, um, and pyrobuterol. So another, I know we've looked up these medications before. I would know Preventil and... Um, Alupent, because we talked about that one before as well. So, on the other side of this, on page 359, we see that um, the short acting is used as needed. A long acting is going to be used to control asthma. So, there is a difference. Um, for the long acting, you have the formeritol and selmeritol. So, I thought form salm. Form sound. I don't know why it was just the two medications. That's what stuck with me. And then you also have epinephrine or adrenaline, and that's going to be done through um, sub Q for a severe dyspnea associated with breathing uh, with asthma. So you have asthma and you're having difficulty breathing. They're going to give you that epi, and it's going to open up your airway because what's going to kill your patient the fastest. Um, so other um, forms are found in multi-dose inhalers, meaning that's a combination of drugs to help with like mild, more mild asthma attacks. So then you have your decongestants. These are not difficult. Um, these are, cause your blood vessels in the nasal mucous membranes to constrict and that reduces drainage. It's going to keep your nose from running. Um, they're available as sprays, oral medications, or they can be combined. Um, and nasal decongestant medications would include the phenyl, Ferine and pseudoephedrine. Um, and these have a bunch of different uh, names for those as well, but the ones that stuck out to me would be Sudafed and uh, the Triaminic. So the use of topical forms uh, immediately re relieve the nasal mucosal swelling and congestion, um, but they should only be used on a short-term basis. Why? Because we want to avoid rebound congestion problems. Then it's like we never fixed it in the first place. They should never be given to young children younger than two years old. Um, in addition, these medications are mixed with antipyretics and analgesics in cold and allergy remedies. So we know that if we give too much of this, we can do what? We can overdose. You're going to monitor your patient for overdose when you're using decongestants. Another thing that stuck out in the back of the chapter um, in the med chart was that you this is going to be contraindicated in a patient with diabetes. Why? Because we are um, causing these blood vessels to constrict. Well, people with diabetes already have issues with their blood vessels, especially in their feet, lower, you know, lower extremities, their eyes. They already have an issue getting... Um, the blood flow to where it needs to be. So if you're giving them something that's going to constrict these, well, then you have a whole other problem. So now we're going to move on to glucocorticoids. So you have um, the main ones that stuck out to me were Palmacort, Arabid, Flovent, Prednisone, Prednisolone, and Methylprednisolone. We have done a million and one med sheets on these guys. Okay, so these are going to suppress your immune system. So when your body is getting ready to fight um, something, this is like, okay, we'll back down for just a minute. We got it. We'll handle it. So when the patient is at risk for exacerbation of asthma, uh, meaning, you know, uh, pollen counts are high, they can give these medications to um, 
as a prophylaxis. So they're not used for acute episodes such as um, like an onset of asthma very quickly. This is used as a preventative. So prophylaxis is a preventative. Um, so these are going to be your uh, budesonide, palmacort, arabid, and flovent. These are we've done a million sheets on this. Um, and then we have uh, those are taken daily, not for acute episodes. So then you have to treat acute asthma episodes. You have your decadron, you have your prednisone, prednisolone, methylprednisolone, and medrol. And then in severe acute episodes, you would have methylprednisolone, solumedrol. Um, and that would be given through an IV in much higher doses to dilate the airways and allow respirations to ease because what's going to kill your patient the fastest? Um, so these glucocorticoids should only be taken in short term, no more than 10 days because they have severe um, adverse effects and we do not want that. So you're going to give... Um, the lowest effective dose for the least amount of time as possible. So then you have your mucolytics, and guys, this one's going to be super easy because there's only one medication, and it has the word in the word. It's mucolytics, and your medication is mucomist, so acetyl, acetylcysteine. The difference between a mucolytic and an antusive, um, hold on just a second. I'm sorry, the difference between a mucolytic and an expectorant is an expectorant is going to thin secretions and a mucolytic is going to liquefy the um, secretions. So the point is to just get this stuff out. Um, it can be combined with expectorants and it can help remove irritating substances from the lungs. Um, so this is seen a lot in aerosol treatment in cystic fibrosis. Um, which is a genetic disease that causes the respiratory secretions to be extremely thick and very difficult to cough up and what can cause your patients to die the fastest. Um, so you're going to use these very frequently in part of their respiratory care so that they can cough this stuff up. Um, so oxygen, this one was very easy as well. So we know that it's used for low oxygenation or hypoxia. So hypoxia is low oxygen. So it can be used in long-term use for somebody that has COPD. Um, acute use for, to treat dyspnea. So if you, you know, are admitted to the ER because you're having difficulty breathing, they will hook you up on oxygen. Um, and for carbon monoxide poisoning because you want to reverse that. Um, so we know that you use tubes to get those in. Um, you know, your cannulas, your mask. And then it's also considered a drug, so you must have in order to give this. Um, for instance, patients with COPD tend to retain CO2. Um, and it leads to higher than normal levels of CO2 the lower the normal levels in the blood. So normally, the higher levels of CO2 in our body, we're going to breathe more deep, deeply and more rapidly to, ex, um, to exhale the excess of CO2. So we're trying to hurry, hurry, hurry and get that out. Um, let's see. Okay, I'm going to go to the next page. If you give someone too much oxygen, giving a patient with COPD more oxygen than prescribed can actually cause this to shut off this adaptive mechanism, which is your body's way of compensating for something. And it's saying, oh, well, you're handling it? Okay, well, then I'm going to step down. Um, and this could cause breathing to stop or slow markedly, which is not okay. We also know that you cannot give too much oxygen to who? Infants. Why? Because it can damage the eyes. Too much oxygen. 
oxygen and infants can damage the eyes. Then you have your respiratory stimulants, and this is going to be um, for patients who have a problem with apnea, which is a, a period of breathing cessation. You stop breathing. So always think of sleep apnea. Patients stop breathing in their sleep. Um, so the typical patient is going to be a premature infant whose brain isn't developed, um, and they're going to require a nudge to breathe. So when they say nudge to breathe, um, here we go with caffeine citrate or capsid. Caffeine citrate. I'm going to think of coffee. I'm going to give this baby some coffee. It's going to wake them up. That's what I'm thinking. Um, and then we have a theophylline, which we've already seen um, in our xanthines. Okay. So, um, in adult, sleep apnea is a structural problem, meaning um, that it has something to do with, their, with an obstruction. So, most of the time, it'll be a patient that you have that is overweight. And when they sleep they're on their back, there's a lot of pressure on their chest, and it can cause... Um, their breathing to be cut off. So there's not been a medication that has helped with this, but they do wear CPAP machines that will diet um, and they'll go through a lot of changes so that they can correct this. So we have our smoking cessation and the trick for these is they're going to say Nick. So Nick needs to stop smoking. Um, so we know that smoking is addictive. We know that we should stop smoking if we are. We know that the patch is the Nicoderm and the Nicorette is your gum. Um, do not allow your patient to or please urge them to not smoke while they have um, nicotine patches on. Why? Because nicotine patches are going to give you nicotine in small amounts until you can be pulled off of this. We don't want them to necessarily stop cold turkey because it makes it a lot harder and then you have withdrawal syndromes and then you have to start treating other things. So if you can pull them away slowly, chances are it's going to work out better. But if you are giving them the small amounts in the patches and they are smoking as well, they can actually have a nicotine overdose. That's a whole other problem in itself. So other routes for nicotine can be inhalation or na and nasal spray. Um, another drug that can be prescribed is uh, bupropion hydrochloride. And the main one that stuck out to me was Wellbutrin. Um, it's originally developed as an antidepressant. Um, but it's been found to have a significant benefit in the battle to stop smoking. So, but a serious risk of this would be suicidal ideation and completion. So, you want to keep an eye on your uh, patient while they are taking this medication. Um, and you should really take a look at your patient situationally and see if you, uh, what your risks do as far as outweigh the benefits. Um, and then you also have your Chantix, which is going to um, convince your brain that smoking is not as uh, pleasurable as it was. So, it's going to kind of pull you away from that urge.